So welcome to the Eightfold Path program. This begins our time that we'll be studying each of the folds over the next eight months. And the way it works is that these Sundays are the kickoff of a particular topic. So we're starting with wise view today. I know some of you may have done some of the reading or any, some, something ahead of time, but uh, officially we're starting now and it's, um, you don't need to do the reading before the Sunday. Um, and you'll also get, as was noted at the introductory meeting, you'll get the re weekly reflections and you'll meet with your mentor and so forth. The idea is that you'll probably meet with your mentor <clears throat> near the end of this time. There's so much material given, given to you and we want you to explore it on your own and talk with your friends if you want and then speak with your mentor maybe in the third or fourth week, you know, right before the next topic so that you can wrap things up and set some intentions and get ready to go on to the next path factor. So, yeah, see how that will work out. Um, does anybody have any lo quick logistical questions that are still confusing about the program? A lot of it, you know, you'll just see as it unfolds. You all got here today, so I figure you're doing well. <laughs> yeah, Donna. Well, luckily that one is um, free. It's available online at the insightmeditationcenter.org um, <clears throat> website, or they actually have physical copies there if you ever happen to go there. We also have copies. Do we have some? And, okay. Um, but there is a Donna envelope to offer back to IMC. Um, it is a free book. Mm -hmm. but if if anybody wanted to. Okay. Do you know where they are and we could get them out at the break? I do. Okay. We'll do that at the break for anybody who might want that. Probably, I don't know if there's enough for everyone, but we'll see. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. I missed the initial introductory meeting, so I don't know if there's anything to recap about that. Um. I think we won't go over all the details. You'll mostly see it. It's also in that introductory email that you got from Chris. That pretty much summarizes what happened at that meeting. Yeah. Okay. Great. So I thought we would just um, quickly go around the room and everybody say their name just so that it's um, heard. We won't do this every single meeting, but I would kind of like to put some faces to some of the names that I saw on the registration form. So let's just start over here. And Betsy. Go across the front. Olivia. Abby. Okay. Shane. G. Bill. Julia. Amy. Karen. Roman. Justin. India. Kristen. Stats. Heather. Holly. <laughs> Kevin. Tim. We'll go across to Laura. Great. Thanks, everyone. It's wonderful to see so many people interested in learning about this path. I also have a few um, questions, and I'll credit Karen that she inspired these. <laughs> So um, just as kind of a show of hands to get a sense, um, how many people consider themselves pretty new to practice? Okay. Um, how many have heard of or are familiar with the teaching that's called the Eightfold Path? 
Oh, everybody. I was going to say the next one is how many are kind of new to the Eightfold Path. You could raise your hand for both of those. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, and then consider now um, some of the areas in your life where you feel challenged or you feel some kind of dis dissatisfaction or maybe a little bit of offness, even that's a technical term, um, something like that. You can answer more than one of these. How many of you feel that um, those areas are for you physically? And how about um, mentally or emotionally? Okay. And then how about um, spiritually or existentially? Yeah. So part of this is also to look around the room and see that um, we're here with similar questions, similar challenges. And this is the uh, kind of a segue that much of the learning, I think, is going to occur between you as you walk this path together and come to the Sundays and have a chance to speak with each other. And maybe you'll find some friends and speak outside also. That's a lot of the way this path works. Um, so the Buddha teaches that this kind of offness or dissatisfaction is... Um, something that can be completely eliminated through practice. So I'm interested, um, how many are familiar with this as the goal of Buddhist practice, the cessation of suffering? Yeah, many of you. How many of you find that to be somewhat inspiring in some way? Yeah. <laughs> I said that so carefully that almost everybody raised their hand, but it's actually a, a question that I think we will keep asking ourselves as the path goes along. You know, we may say it at one level, and then later we realize we're saying it at a different level. So it's actually, those are meant to be questions to uh, also just insert into your mind and heart over the course of this year. So let's now do some sitting together. So please find a posture that's upright and also relaxed in some way. Allowing your attention to come inward. <clears throat> Just feeling maybe your sense of sitting, sitting in the chair or on the cushion. Maybe Shifting a little bit to find some balance, seeing if you can find a posture that feels pretty balanced, not causing strain on your body. Feeling into that support where you're sitting. Putting the attention down into the seat and the legs or feet on the floor. You can check if you've kind of let go into that. Or is there some resistance? Or if you wanted to do something more active, can help to imagine roots even growing down sense of having a supportive base is helpful in the posture. 
And then you may notice that as your connection to the base deepens, there's actually a corresponding lightness to the upright part of the body. Some people feel it as a sense of uplift in the spine. Some people feel almost like there's a little string above their head. And so we have this sense of being drawn upward, almost that we're allowing that movement that we weren't allowing before, that straightness. And so it comes with a relaxation. Shoulders hang naturally. Arms are relaxed. We feel how that opens the chest to allow easier breathing. And then there's a softening into this posture, into the uprightness. So allowing the face to soften, soften the expression on your face. That's done by relaxing the muscles in the forehead and around the eyes, around the mouth and the jaw. All the little tiny muscles in the scalp can be relaxed. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. Even inside the skull, we can soften the thinking muscle. Just easing up. Down through the throat and the collarbones, shoulder joints. softening the heart. Releasing the diaphragm. And down into the belly area, letting that be soft. The body is balanced, the spine nicely supports it, and the belly can relax. But there may be several layers there, and we just soften the, the top layer. Down into the hip joints and the groin muscles, deepening the connection to the seat. Letting go of any 
tightness or bracing in the thighs, the knees, calves, down into the ankles and the feet. So we've invited softening and ease through the body. There may be some parts that aren't, which is fine. We just have mental ease around how the body is right now. Just allowing the mind to rest gently in the sensations of the body, the breath, the posture. Very simple, simple things. And if the mind gets busy or distracted or fuzzy and sleepy, we just gently bring it back to the sensations of the breath, the body, noticing the ease and just being mindfully present for our experience.
So as we continue sitting, I would like to invite two reflections. The first is to notice the current state of your body and mind, having gone through and deliberately invited this ease and settled into mindfulness. So we see that the deliberate bringing of attention to the posture and to the willingness to be mindful has an effect. It changes how we feel in our body and our mind, hopefully in a way that's more useful. But the reflection is on the cause and the effect. Our actions matter. How we sit and how we comport ourselves matters. And then the the second reflection is on this sense of ease that I've been encouraging, as well as that earlier sense of offness or challenge or dissatisfaction that you thought about earlier and to reflect that there are, just as we change the body through our action, we can change the mind also through deliberate action and cultivation. And one of the causes and effects we can work through is finding the cause of that offness and allowing that to come to cease such that we don't have suffering. How does this land for you, this dimension of ease and dissatisfaction? And knowing that there's a way to change that.
And we'll sit for a couple more minutes and you're welcome to stay with the reflections or <clears throat> to continue with the, the body and the breath. exploring this first fold of the Eightfold Path, which is wise view. And I want to be a little bit precise about each of those words to start us off. So first is the word that we're calling wise, you know, for each of the steps of the path. It's called wise view, wise intention, wise speech, etc., so you'll, you'll see, even in the readings, um, that this is sometimes written as right, like right view, right intention, right speech. And so um, sometimes there are reactions to the word right. And I just want to acknowledge that because many of us automatically associate that with right and wrong. And we may have had some poor... Uh, experiences with this kind of language already in our spiritual life. And so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, however, the Pali word, with Pali is the ancient Indian language that the Buddhist or early Buddhist texts are written in. Um, and the Pali word for this is uh, Sama. And that word doesn't have a very neat English translation. It could be wise, it could be right. What's meant by this word sama is actually um, something like right, but in the sense of appropriate. So like the right tool for a job, you know? Um, so the appropriate tool, we can understand that. So the Eightfold Path is the tool for liberation. And so each of the steps tell us the appropriate way to do that thing if our aim is to free the mind. So you could say that this is also wise. You know, it's the, the way that we would walk the path is by doing things that are wise. So it's a fair enough, it's not a great, not a very literal translation. I don't think Sama is ever used as wise, but we could understand it that way in the steps of the path. Um, it also has a connotation of complete, which I think is interesting. 
what would it mean to have complete intention, for example, or complete speech? So these words um, can inspire us a little bit as we work with them. Um, the, we're always working with the translation into English, which gives us some, you know, some chance to figure out what they mean for ourselves. So anyway, think of it if you want, let's write like right tool. Um, we wouldn't, we would choose a hammer to drive in a nail, but not really to put in a screw, right? So, okay, so then there's the second word, view, wise view. This also maybe needs some unpacking. Um, in a religious sense or a spiritual sense, when we hear view, and especially when that's the very first thing that we're supposed to do, many people think that this means what we're supposed to believe, you know. Of course, you know, this is a spiritual path. You're supposed to believe something. So what? tell me what to believe to be a Buddhist <laughs> um, or to walk this path. Uh, that's understandable interpretation, but that's not actually what the word view um, means when the Buddha was talking about it. That word is diti, and it also has um, other meanings. So um, views in English can also mean attitudes or opinions, right? What is your view about this issue, this particular issue? And it, it actually, this word view has that connotation also. So it has um, two, I would say two connotations, neither of which is belief. One is in fact, your, your stance and how you're orienting towards something, your view of it. And the other is actually the view like when you're standing on a hill and you get a good overview of things. It's a, um, a vision of something. So both of those aspects are there. We, um, this is a more subtle term than you would think. I'm not going to go into great linguistic detail, but I, I want to give some appreciation for the, for the terminology. So most of us have, um, may know about our surface level views about various political issues or something. But um, we often operate with very little sense of our deeper views. You know, what are we carrying around? Just as an example, many of us might have a view when we walk into a room of what here is threatening to me and what here is safe to me. You know, that's the division that we use. That's actually a view. That's um, views operate like lenses over how we are perceiving and they affect even what information comes in. If I walk in with the view, what's going to be safe? Well, I'm looking for that. And those, that's actually what I'm going to see. Somebody else might walk in and say, what's going to be fun here? And I, I want to avoid all the boring stuff. That's also a view. And it also affects what, what information comes into your uh, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, etc. So, this is actually a pretty big exploration, is what it is that we're carrying into a situation. There are other tools for doing this. Some people will use psychological tools for it. But um, I don't think this is automatically what's implied here. Uh, we'll see as we do the exploration of view that there are many approaches to it. So we can't live without views in the everyday world. Um, so the Buddha advised that we choose views that are going to be beneficial for walking the path. That's the main criterion for whether or not a view is a good one. Is, um, is it useful for the end that you have in mind? And luckily we don't have to 
just figure out exactly what would be supportive for our spiritual development. We are offered a couple of options for Wise View, and which we're going to look at today. Um, and we're invited not to take them on as beliefs or as things that we need to have. Like, okay, this is the, this is where I got to start. Guess I'll adopt this. It's more like you know, take see if it works for you, see how it works. And I'll give a lot of examples in ways when I found these views to be helpful. So I think that might give you some idea of how to do that reflection. So there are generally said to be two kinds of wise view relevant for the path. The Four Noble Truths and the Principle of Karma. Those are the two, or comma. Um, the Four Noble Truths lie at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Now, this is really what he was pointing us toward. And to fully, fully, fully understand suffering and its cessation is to be fully awakened. So obviously, where there are many levels, we can work at these views. Um, so the Four Noble Truths, I think, are the deepest kind of wise view. And we all actually have some degree of understanding about this already. As you'll see when we talk about it, this is not super obscure, actually. It's just that we haven't completely taken it in. So we're going to talk about the Four Noble Truths in the second half, and this first part is devoted to karma. Karma is the Sanskrit word, kama is the Pali word, so either one is okay here. Um, just because karma is more widely known, I might sometimes say that, although it comes with the baggage that everybody thinks they know what karma means, but there's a very popularized notion of it. <laughs> Not exactly. Okay, so somebody once asked the um, the monk Ajahn Jeff or Ajahn Tanisaro, um, they once asked him, what do you have to believe to be Buddhist? <laughs> and he thought for a moment, because as I just said, there aren't really explicit beliefs. There isn't an orthodoxy as so much. Um, so he had to think about that question because he wanted to take it seriously. And finally he said, um, you have to believe in cause and effect. I thought that was a good answer um, because if we don't have any sense that the practice makes a change, why would we do it? So we have to believe that there's something coming about from spiritual practice. There's some effect we can have on our life, on our heart, on our mind. Um, if you really didn't believe that, you wouldn't do this. You wouldn't be here either. So I think we can touch into that. We believe at some level that there is cause and effect in some way. And we may also have a sense that we haven't quite mastered that yet <laughs> um, because it's a long process to do that. But, you know, you can. that's really what's being pointed to. Um, so this is a very important and practical aspect of Wise View is that there is this principle of cause and effect that actions have results in some way. So um, we also have to believe, I guess, that we have some ability to choose our actions. And this is um, also something that I think is fairly intuitive. Probably we, we're, we're aware that we do have some degree of choice. This isn't a philosophical conversation about free will. But, um, you know, we, have some, we can have some impact on the momentum of how our life is going by the actions that we do. So this is very important because if we 
carry that view as a, one of our wise views, then we can enter the path of living in ways that bring happiness and reduce suffering. That's what we're doing. Um, so this, I think, is actually what people mostly want at some level. And we see that it's not so easy necessarily to really manifest that all the time. So that's, you know, that's what we're getting some guidance on and practicing. So let's look at this idea of cause and effect, comma or karma. It expresses in some sense the lawfulness of things that go on in life. Um, in particular, the lawfulness that's important is that skillful actions bring some kind of happiness and unskillful actions bring harm or suffering. This is a basic division. And it's um, something that we can understand at a cognitive level fairly easily, but then, you know, the, the details in our life are what's where the real juice is. And this word skillful and unskillful, of course, is something that is, I think we have to start discerning that practically, but it means, of course, skillful toward an end, the end being to reduce suffering. You know, something is skillful, then you've done it well. You've done it in a way that furthers you along the, the path away from suffering. If you've done something unskillfully, which we all do, there's a sense that it didn't quite work. And so there's some, uh, some suffering that comes from that. So this begins to be our frame of mind as we tune into kama or karma is, was that action skillful or unskillful in some way without putting too fine a point on exactly what that means. It's a practical thing that we determine as we go through. So actions that are motivated by or done under the influence of greed, hatred, or delusion are things that will lead to suffering. These are not beliefs. These are premises. So actions that are done under the influence of these three qualities, greed or hatred or delusion, are going to tend to be the unskillful ones that lead to harm or suffering. Actions that are motivated by or done under the influence of the opposite, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or if you want more positive words, generosity, loving-kindness and compassion, or non-cruelty, non-hatred, non-ill will, words like that, those are the ones that lead away from suffering. So this is starting to be the term of view in terms of orientation. So suddenly we want to start orienting our mind toward whether there's greed, hatred, or delusion present. You can start to see why this becomes a practice and why it's something that will unfold over a long time. We may not know at a given moment if how much of that we have in our mind. So we're going to have to start looking. This is said more concisely in the first two verses of a book called the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. 
So we're given the words, but we're also given an image, right? What's an image of an ox cart like with the wagon wheel following the hoof of the ox, just grinding along, right? It gives a sense of heaviness. And these are actions that we're doing under the influence of these old, old habits. And they just come, and we know what's going to happen. We get angry, we snap at somebody, they're angry at us, da-da-da-da, it just goes on. Um, whereas the other image we're given, it's interesting because it's a shadow, which we might think has negative connotations, but a never-departing shadow. So the shadow is light. It just follows us. It's no effort for the shadow to follow us around. It doesn't weigh anything comes mostly because there's light, <laughs> and then there's the shadow that's effortless, and it follows us um, easily, completely mimicking what we do. In the same way, when we act with happiness, with peace, with kindness, with compassion, these are the qualities that then flow into our lives. I think we've seen that. It may not be one-to-one, -one, like, hey, I said something kind to my roommate and she still snapped at me, that's it, karma doesn't work. <laughs> Not quite like that, but, um, you know, so we start to, we start to maybe tune in to these images that are given. So it's not an injunction or a commandment. It's something that we explore and experience for ourselves. And it's quite concrete. So let me give, um, let me give an example. When I had a job where I worked in an office, I would respond to the um, pressure of needing to get things done by certain deadlines, um, my many work duties. I would respond by working harder. <laughs> and I thought that um, I, would, I would tighten up a little bit and kind of push myself to do one more email before I took a break or you know, one more reading task or something else before I would um, stop. And then I thought, I thought somehow that having like one additional thing ticked off my list was going to make the break feel more satisfying somehow, but, uh, or maybe more justified or something. But I have to say that my experience was not that, you know, it was that when I, um, over time, I became kind of more stressed by this behavior. And I began to see that the effects on my physical and mental well-being of pushing a little bit to get more done in order to feel more satisfied was actually not the right way. It was, it was making it less satisfying in some sense. And so, you know, if I was having a kind of an projecting that outward, I would say that I would get angry about my work duties. Oh, they gave me too much to do. Or if I was feeling like more cognitively oriented, I would fault Western capitalism for its sense of needing to create these jobs where people think they need to work so hard and what's wrong with the capitalist world and so forth. But um, actually those things were all part of the stress also. <laughs> it's more useful um, if we take on this idea of wise view as how do my actions lead to suffering or away from suffering, I would start to look at what I was doing. What was I contributing to that? Well, I was contributing the pushiness. And so if I just didn't do that, actually the work duties would be much easier. Uh, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have to worry about that so much. So there's, 
you know, I can certainly say that my, I can now say that there may be problems with Western capitalism. I'm not trying to argue about that. And I don't, I think there probably were a lot of things I had to do in that job that weren't necessary. But I can say that the most immediate contributor to my stress was certainly my attitude and my reactivity and believing that I should push myself. So uh, wise view, or also called wise understanding, actually, you'll see that in Bonte G's book, um, shows that it's my actions that were leading to the suffering, certainly for me and probably for my coworkers too. So there's that aspect. And then I'll, I'll give another example, which is the, um, the change that I've undergone in becoming a volunteer in a hospital. So I first volunteered about 10 years ago at a children's hospital. And then uh, more recently, I've been doing um, more spiritual care. But even at that very first time, what I was doing was I was wheeling a cart around that had books and videos that the kids could check out. So it was very super simple activity. You just go in, you see if they're in a position where they want a book or a video and you check it out to them and you give it to them. It's nice. They feel happy, you know, so it has benefits to it. But I can say that um, I was nervous about walking into uh, opening that door and, you know, I'm going to go into a room. I don't know what I'm going to see. I don't know who's going to be there and what all their relationships are to each other. Sometimes there's multiple people there and there's some tension in the room and you walk in with your cart and it's like, wow, how do I, how do I do that? Um, and then, you know, later when I took on more of a spiritual care role, I volunteer as a, in the spiritual care department um, there I'm walking in, I'm actually asking people, hey, you know, what kind of suffering are you undergoing? I might not say it quite like that, but I have to strike up a conversation with someone who's probably not having their best day and offer myself in some way. I don't know what religion they are. Well, I have it written on a sheet, but sometimes it's not correct. It might not be mine. And, you know, how do I make myself available? So at the beginning, this was a big stress factor for me, but I wanted to take it on as a challenge and I can honestly say that over time, um, I don't feel that fear anymore in the same way when I approach that door. So I developed some skill in being present and compassionate. I can't say exactly what that was. I did do the Sati Center chaplaincy training. And if you're interested in Buddhist chaplaincy, it's a, it's a great one. Um, so I had some explicit instruction, but I had to do it. I had to go practice it and actually go and be there and do it and show up. And over time, somehow, there was some skill developed in that. So um, it matters. I can guarantee you that if I hadn't done that volunteering, I don't think I would have that skill. They're related. And so... Um, this is where you start maybe seeing the potential of these eight practices that we're going to take on is that each one is something where if we take it on and actually engage with it somehow, and that's going to look different for each of you. Wow. Well, we'll actually have some different skill at the end of doing that. And because this is a good path, it's a skill that's leading us away from having as much suffering in our life. So, um, cause and effect. So many people think of like cause and consequence, action and consequences. Well, what about the, the good stuff that comes and the development that comes? So if we do this repeatedly, developing our skillfulness, you know, we'll see that the most important dimension that we're 
that we're working on, among many things. We each have many dimensions to work on, but probably the most important is this dimension of dukkha or suffering, which we're going to talk about more in the second half. But you know how it is that we're creating the causes of suffering and how it is that we can let go of those and live with more openness and more ease. So there are so many areas to develop skillful actions. Our speech, our way of being with people, our even our simple actions like how we make our food in the morning. Do you bang the bowls around and slam the coffee mug and all these things? Or can we start to have actions that are also more based in ease and calm. And this goes for a long time. It goes all the way, and that's not a statement about the long drudgery of the path, but there it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, this is maybe an article of faith, but all the way to the end, all the way to the end of suffering. We can live without any struggle. So... We're now going to get a chance to talk about this among each other, talk about our cause and effect and our degree of understanding and what it is that, um, you know, that's, that we're kind of bringing on this day. So you'll see that this is a kind of a pattern on these Sundays is that we have a little bit of introduction to the topic and then there's going to be these small groups um, that we'll break into and have a chance to talk among ourselves. I know some of you might be saying, oh no, I hate small groups. I didn't know there were going to be small groups. I was going to show up if I had to do that. So, okay, this is with mindfulness. We just observe that this is what's going on in the mind. And um, this is not, you're not required, of course, to participate in these, but um, I would encourage you to give it a try, kind of like in the going into the hospital room where you don't know, you just, you know, just open the door and give it a try. Um, but like I said, of course, if anyone wants to sit aside, that's okay. But these are really pretty nice people. And um, the questions are pretty easy. And so, um, you know, it's a chance to, yeah, to share among yourselves. And then um, we're going to do two questions in small groups, and then we'll come back and debrief. And then after that, we have a break. So um, if you can make it through without the bathroom, that's um, just to let you know when the break is coming. But of course, take care of your needs at any time. So um, why don't we get into groups of either three or four, and the mentors who are here can, can be their own group. Um, so I'll let you guys do that first, and then we'll have the questions and some more instruction again. Okay, so um, the first question, I'll read it again after this, but let me first just prompt you for a moment. It's going to be, give an example of a time when one of your actions was unskillful, either immediately or because it led to poor consequences over time. So this is like my office example of working harder when I thought I was stressed. So the question then is, what did you not understand about this situation? So I didn't understand that pushing was actually adding stress, for example. So please don't give your heaviest example. It's just something relatively simple. And the focus is not so much on the story, because you already know the story, so don't spend a lot of time telling it. You can kind of jump to the end. The question really is, what did you not understand about this situation? So just tell enough that 
you'll be able to say something about that. And the way that we'll do it um, is that each person will have a chance to speak about that. Um, and we, since this is kind of personal, we want to just listen politely to that person. I mean, you don't have to have a stone face, but you don't, please don't like react or um, ask questions. Um, let, them, let them kind of speak and explore on their own. And the others will be silent but attentive. So there's a practice of listening. And then um, when that person finishes, we'll have a, just a pause, and then the next person will have a chance. And you'll, you'll have a little chance at the end to talk among yourselves. But this is mostly for the person talking um, to explore that and for the people listening to hear what they're saying and to receive it. Is that clear? And I'll time you so that you don't have to keep the time. I think each person will have about a, a minute and a half to, to two minutes. It'll be the same for everyone. Um, and when it... When I call the time, please just wind up what you're saying and, and then we'll go on. You'll get the hang of these because you'll do them every month, but I'm giving a lot of instruction this first time. Okay, so please go ahead. The first person, let's say the person with the shortest hair gets to start. <laughs> yeah, let's just take a pause for a moment and Kind of let that settle and think about what you heard and what you said and okay and then we will have a, a second question to be done in the same way and this one is um, give an example of a good skill or quality that you have developed over time it could be a craft or an art or a sport or some personal quality. So some good skill or quality that you've developed over time. And so then, again, the real question is the second part. What inner qualities or ways of thinking supported this development? What did you have to understand going into this that allowed you to develop that skill well? Make sense? Okay, so why don't you just go in the same order as you did before the first person can start. Okay, so the, the last bit before we take a break is just to, um, to have an opportunity to share anything in the larger group that you wanted to offer from, from that uh, small group session. So, of course, you're not repeating exactly what your neighbor said, but um, any, you know, collective wisdom that you might be able to share that's coming out of that. And plus, I didn't get to hear any of you guys, really. So I'd like to know what you talked about. And you could say your name before you offer. Did you have something? Yeah. I'm Laura. And um, one of our mentors brought up the idea, which I just find is pretty universal and certainly applies to me, is that taking whatever situation happens personally and it covers a lot of ground. Boy, does it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. Thank you. Yeah. The other Laura. Okay. <laughs> I think one thing I really heard was uh, developing skill in this area takes a lot of patience. 
patience. Oh, yes, patience. That's mentioned often as a good quality. We do. We get many, many moments per day to practice. Thank you. Yeah, Shane. Yeah, Shane, um, we talked about towards the end of ours that as we get to hear each other's difficulties or foibles, that you know, we all deal with the same things, that we're all just human beings doing this path together. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Kevin, uh, one of the things I noticed when we were talking about the unskillful um, things that occurred were they were all. Um, things that were done in times where we were feeling vulnerable or we were in a vulnerable situation. Mm. So maybe starting to bring awareness to when we're in those situations. Yeah, those are conditions that might yeah. prompt unskillfulness. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And did I see your hand, Julia? Okay. I can share something. Great. <laughs> um, I noticed that we first... Um, shared how we noticed that our unskillful actions were predominantly interpersonal, how we impacted another person. Mm -hmm. That's what um, helped us to wake up a little bit when we saw that. Yeah, definitely we're cultivating that kind of interpersonal awareness so we have a better sense of how we're tromping through the world and um, sometimes people's skill people's attunement can be very very outward actually and um, part of the path can help us to bring some of our attunement inward actually to whether um, we're suffering through what we're doing but they're they're both useful yeah Okay, so I hope what we saw is that um, what understanding we're carrying into a situation has an impact. It's, it's not a neutral thing. Um, it can, certain misunderstandings can lead to unskillful behavior and certain kinds of understandings support the development. Like Laura mentioned patience, for example, that's a, um, a condition that is supportive for walking the path along with other things are needed. So we just start to see um, what's related to what, and that's this wise view of, of karma, of cause and effect, of action and result. Very big area of practice, but also feel the power of it. You know, when we start looking at that, we see the lawfulness. Okay, so let's take about a 10-minute break. Um, feel free to get up and stretch, use the bathroom, and we'll, then we'll come back. Thanks.